0: want to gather around here and just uh, take a seat here. All right. Where are you going to sit? Right there? All right. Well, wonderful. Good to see you guys. What's, uh, what's coming up? What holiday is coming up pretty soon? Easter. Easter. Yeah, exactly. What's, what's, what's so important about Easter? Yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. And that's pretty important, isn't it? Uh, what do you get a lot of during Easter? Easter eggs. Easter eggs. What else do you get during Easter? Candy, a lot of candy, right? Somehow candy and Easter have become synonymous. And I have, uh, I have some candy that I want to give you guys. But first, I want to ask you a question. And uh, I'll let the the winner, the one who gets the right answer, take this home today. But you have to promise me that you won't eat it all during church (laughs) or even Sunday school, all right? How many jelly beans do you think are in this jar, Kennedy? 100. What do you think? 82. There are more than 82. How many do you, anybody else have any guesses? How many do you think, Ellie? 50, no, more than 50. 60? More than 60. Go higher. Uh, it's more than 100, too. Did I forget to say that? 200? Less than 200. 150, less than 150. We're getting closer. What about you? 102, 102. more than 102. More than 130. We're getting warmer. More than 140. 140? Less than 145. <laughs> 142. Congratulations! There are 142 jelly beans in that jar. We counted them out last night, and please don't eat them all at once, or your dad will be very upset. (laughs) Now, I have another jar here. What's in this jar? Not quite pepper. Rocks. Sand. How many grains of sand do you think (laughs) are in this jar? 50,000, I'll give you a hint, there's a lot more than 50,000. 1,000 infinity, not quite that many. (laughs) But in this jar, scientists estimate that uh, in one cubic centimeter, there are 10,000. And in this jar, there are 200 and, what did I calculate, 236. So that means in this jar, there are 2,365,000 grains of sand. That's a lot of sand. Do you think you could count that high? How long do you think it would take to count that? (laughs) Probably like a whole year. Now, who's been to the ocean? Have you seen the ocean or, or a beach before? What's a beach covered with? Sand. How many grains of sand do you think are on the shore? There's a whole lot, right? (laughs) A whole lot, more than we could ever count. Now, do you know something that's even more abundant than all the sand on the seashore? God's love for you. The Bible describes God's love as immeasurable, something that you cannot count, something that you can never really fathom. And our sermon this morning is about that, God's love, and how it's immeasurable. So I want you to listen during the sermon. I want you to listen for that word, immeasurable, okay? All right, thank you. You may, uh, well, here, I have uh, some candy for you. You may have one of these. And Serena, you get this one because you uh, counted that one yesterday. All right, you may take, each take one from the bag here. And again, please don't eat it all during church. <laughs> All right, just take one and return to your seats. Thank you. Do I have enough? I think I have enough. You can go sit down, Serena. All right. Please go sit down. Uh, Good morning, uh, the rest of you. (laughs) Thank you for uh, humoring me with yet another children's sermon. Uh, Last time when I did one of those, I I, I promised uh, something for those who came. And so this morning I I delivered on that promise. And again, moms, I do apologize on the sugar content of this giveaway. This morning's message is from uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Find that in your Bibles uh, if you have not already. Pastor Lloyd has spent the last couple of weeks looking at different letters written by Jesus that were addressed to a couple of different churches. And this week, I want to turn our attention to another letter written to a church, uh, but this time it's written by the Apostle Paul. And we'll see this morning, as Paul writes a letter uh, to believers who live in the city of Ephesus, uh, he writes them concerning matters of death and life. When somebody says it's a matter of life and death, it's usually an exaggeration, isn't it? The, uh, the spider in the kitchen is probably not going to kill you. You might kill it, but it will not kill you, especially if you are in Minnesota. We don't have very dangerous spiders, right? Uh, you won't die if, if, you don't have, uh, if your wardrobe hasn't been updated in the last three months. Your, your life won't come to an abrupt end if you don't have the latest phone each time they come out with a new one but there are some things that are a matter of life and death wearing your seatbelt when you get in the car Uh, taking the advice of your doctor when she tells you to eat better and to exercise more in Ephesians chapter 2 Paul discusses with the Ephesians matters of death and life specifically matters of spiritual death and spiritual life We'll study the first 10 verses this morning, uh, but I want to start just by reading the first three verses. Uh, Would you stand with me out of reverence for God's word as I read? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, reading in Jesus' name. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Your word is truth. Please sanctify us in that truth this morning. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of every present heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul shares with us uh, three realities, three vital signs, if you will, about ourselves and about God that are truly matters of death and life. And the first reality, the first vital sign is that we are all born dead. We are all spiritually stillborns, if you will. You are dead, he says, in your trespasses and your sins the stillborn baby is one of the hardest the most tragic of things that occurs isn't it right a mother carries that baby that precious child uh, within her for nine months nurturing that baby and herself mom spends those nine months making sure she takes the eats the right food takes the right vitamins uh, avoids the roller coasters and other dangerous uh, situations all in an effort to provide that child uh, with the best possible potential for that child to grow and to live as God intended and then the labor pain set in, and hours, sometimes and hours, of, of labor, all for naught, it seems, as that child is born dead. Heartbreak and tragedy don't even begin to describe that situation. And not minimizing that awful grief at all, Paul uh, declares that we are all spiritual stillborns, stillborns who have been declared dead from the moment we were born. And actually, according to the word of God, you are spiritually dead before the moment you were born. You have within you a sin nature that is ingrained in you, staining your soul, constantly leading you away from the Lord. There are a couple of fancy theological terms that have been used to describe this concept. In some circles it's called original sin. In other circles it's called total depravity. In Romans Paul talks about it being our flesh or the old man. But whatever you want to call it, you have a sin nature within you that has, that has marred you and caused you to be a spiritual stillborn. And each person has this original sin lurking within. It's been passed down from our, parent, from our first parents, from Adam and Eve, to each one of their descendants. Uh, you have it simply by virtue of being a human being. And this sin nature, this original sin, separates you from the Lord. And that is, by the way, one reason why we baptize infants We recognize that there is a sin nature in Nellie, even though she is only weeks old, right? That sin nature was in her, even as she was growing and developing within the womb. We recognize that she and every one of us needs God's grace and mercy in our lives. And so in faith, we bring our children to the Lord in baptism, believing that the Lord washes away sins and that the little child is received into his kingdom, becoming his little child, and what's more, you're, you're, you're dead not only because of your sin nature, Paul says, the original sin that corrupts all of humanity, but because of the actual trespasses and sins that you commit on a daily basis. We, we know what the word trespass means, don't we? Uh, literally, the word trespass means false step. Think of the, of the no trespassing signs right, that your neighbor has put up on their trees. No trespassing. They're there for a reason, right? To keep others, (laughs) most likely you, out of their property, right? And so, of course, what happens? The the deer you shoot during hunting season just happens to be on the other side of the property line. So, what do you do? (laughs) You willingly violate that no trespassing sign. You false step onto their uh, property, taking that deer. And we do the same thing spiritually. We willingly false step over the boundaries that the Lord has set up and established in his word. He says, Do not bear false witness, but we can't help but gossiping about a coworker. The Lord says, Do not covet, but yet we have trouble being content with what we have, have been given. And he says, Honor the Sabbath, but we can't find two minutes to, to, to take a break and to rest. Your trespasses earn you death. It's the same with your sins. They earn you death as well. Uh, the Greek word for sins is hamartia, and originally it's an archery term. It means missing the mark. You know, you, you've notched the arrow, you, you've pulled back on the string, and, and you've let it fly, only to have that arrow miss the bullseye. Uh, you may still have, well, hit the target, but just not perfectly, dead on, Right? Uh, The the goal always has been to hit the bullseye whenever you're doing archery, right? Not just the target. Or, Or think of it in terms of bowling, right? Every time you fail to throw a strike, you have missed the mark. You have sinned. Anything short of perfection, continual, unrelenting perfection, the Lord says, is missing the mark, is sin. The Lord says, be holy, for I am holy. And every time we fail to perfectly live up to that standard, we miss the mark. You've sinned. Every lie you've told, every hateful thought you've harbored, every false idol that you have esteemed, these are all unperfections, if I can make up that word. And all of these unperfections have earned you death. And no one is excluded from this spiritual death. Paul says in verse 3 that we all were once like this. The diagnosis of being spiritual stillborns is all-inclusive. It leaves nobody out. It included the apostle Paul as he once opposed Christ and was actively engaged in the murder of Christians. The Ephesian Christians themselves were once this too. Uh, Before they had learned about Christ, they worshipped a pantheon of Roman and Greek deities following the rituals and idolatries that went along with it. And this also includes you as well. You were marred by sin and the sin nature that is inherited simply by being human being. You were dead, spiritually dead, from the moment you were conceived so far this morning, it's been a lot of bad news, hasn't it? <laughs> We've talked a lot about matters of death. Paul, however, does give us some good news beginning in the verse, next verse, verse 4. Uh, but first, right, Paul had to spell out the, the diagnosis before the cure would make any sense. Look at verses 4 through 7. The next reality, the next vital sign that the Lord gives is that God has made us alive with Christ. Look at these words here. But God, despite your deadness, despite your sinfulness, the Lord did something for you. But God made you alive he goes on to say in verse 5 and we'll talk about the being made alive in just a bit uh, but Paul can't help stop and but descri- can't help but stop and describe the, the character and the nature of God did you catch that he says that God is rich in mercy and acted on your behalf because of the great love with which he loved us Despite your sinfulness, despite your deadness, God is still full of mercy and love, grace and forgiveness for you. The Lord always finds value and worth in you. He sees it even when others don't or can't or won't see it. He's sort of like a like an antique dealer at an auction, finding value in what others would call junk. You remember that old show that used to be on PBS, Antiques Roadshow? Is it still on anymore? It is? Okay, and I know there are some newer varieties and variations of it too, right? Same, same theme, though people bring their junk and they have it appraised by various experts, right? To see if it's worth anything. And quite often the appraisers would find beauty and value when others only saw junk, a vase, or a, a vase, if you will, that sat on, on grandmother's mantle, right, for, for eons and eons, uh, turns out to be a priceless antique from the Ming Dynasty, or, or that tr- chest up in the attic that, that held dress-up clothes for the grandkids well, was brought over by a pilgrim on the Mayflower, right? Crazy things like that. Where others might look at you and see junk, the Lord sees your true value and your true worth. And trust the word of the antique expert, right? The one who knows what he's talking about. (laughs) And not only the people who see junk. In spite of your sins, the Lord loves you and has mercy for you. And so what did God do for you? Paul says in verse 5 that he took you, a spiritual stillborn, and he made you alive. The picture here is of the Lord breathing life into a dead corpse of your spiritual body reviving you making you come back to life how is that possible how did the Lord do that Well, it's only possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as Jesus died on the cross he gave gave his life in exchange for yours he took your place on the cross bearing the wrath of God against sin so that you don't have to he shed his blood, redeeming you from sin. Through his death, you are made alive. But ultimately, this, this new life is given to you, uh, applied individually to you when you receive his word, when you believe in him. Uh, for many of you, that, that occurred at your baptism as God's grace came to you through the water and the word. And for many of you, you didn't receive Jesus or believe in him until a moment later on in your life. Whenever it was, at that moment, the moment you first believed, God made you alive. And having been made alive, God continues to do wonderful things for us. In verse 6, Paul says that the Lord has raised us up with him, that is, with Christ, and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have been raised up and seated with Christ. So what does that mean and why is it important? Well, being raised up to new life means that you are now empowered to live for him. You don't have to carry on in your new spiritual life on your own, but you are empowered with only the strength that he can provide you. And being seated with him in the heavenly places is a nod to the fact that uh, through Christ, through his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, this world is no longer our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We, are, we become pilgrims waiting to follow our Lord to the place where he has gone on before us. And Jesus' own resurrection from the grave and his ascension into heaven are the guarantee of our own future resurrection from death and ascension into heaven on that last day. And Paul continues... He says, The Lord, having made you alive, having raised you up and seated you with Christ, uh, the Lord also showers on you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. And there's that word that we were listening for, right? Immeasurable. Look at verse 7 again. It says this, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This promise, Paul says, is for the coming ages. And scholars are, are admittedly divided as to exactly when the coming ages are. Is this a reference to, to only eternity after Jesus has returned, after God recreates heaven and earth? Is this for some future coming utopian age? Or is this a, a promise for the, the, for the present, something we have right here and right now? And I tend to believe that this promise in verse 7, the promise of God showering his immeasurable riches on us is a present reality. Uh, John Stott, the British pastor and author, sees it that way too and he said he said this, he said, "The new life now begun will endure forever, so that the manifestation of God's grace will always or will be always renewing itself." If I can restate it, he's saying it this way. In Christ, we have new life. And it started when God made us alive. And that truth is continuing to make itself real in our lives each and every single day. And I like how Paul describes God's riches as immeasurable. We talked about that concept again in the children's sermon, right? Uh, We we counted the, the, the amount of jelly beans in the jar are there any less jelly beans in the jar now than when we started? A few a few less? Just a few less? Right? <laughs> That's good, right? <laughs> we, we even went as far as estimating the sand in this jar too, right? Uh, but there are a lot of other things that are immeasurable, right? Uh, <laughs> 1.9 trillion dollars is simply unfathomable for me, right? <laughs> the number of stars in the universe is, is incomprehensible. Uh, the number of grains on, of sand on the seashore, again, are, are that immeasurable concept. And yes, we, we acknowledge that there are a finite number of stars in the sky, a finite number of grains of sand on the beach. Uh, so sure, you could sit there and count them, uh, but it would take you all of eternity's eternities to finish them, right? Right? Now try to measure, try to count, try to calculate God's love for you. You really can't, can you? It is infinite. It is never-ending. It is limitless. It has, however, been fully demonstrated for us as God sent Jesus to die for us. His love was on full display and now we get to spend uh, the rest of our lives and probably the rest of eternity trying to measure and calculate and understand the depth of that love. And I think if we could fully understand and grasp God's love for us, if that reality really stuck with us, I think we would spend less time worrying and being anxious. We won't look for our value and our worth in, in the approval of others, only what the Lord thinks of us. We would spend less time worried about the future and all the unknowns of life because we would fully realize that he's got the whole world in his hands. And so this week, I'd encourage you to ponder God's love for you, God's love that is found in the measurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you. Ponder that. Meditate on that. There's a third reality, a third vital sign that is a a matter of death and life in these verses, and it's this, that we have been redeemed by grace through faith, and we are created to do good works. Look at the next set of verses here, verses 8, 9, and 10. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These are some very familiar yet very wonderful verses. In in all reality, they're some of the most uh, important verses in, in Scripture. They really summarize the gospel well. In these verses, we're told that our salvation has only always been a costly and a free gift and no that is not a contradiction uh, you've heard the expression now uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch right you've heard that before if you're old enough you've probably said it right <laughs> what does it mean it means that if you ever get something for free it costs somebody something whether it was a uh, free sample at Costco or a cup of coffee from caribou or whatever right it definitely costs somebody something and usually it's a cost that's built into the budget, right? That cup of coffee costs somebody, the owner, something. And it's the same thing with your salvation as well. It is a free gift to you, yes, but it did cost somebody something, right? It costs the father his son It cost the son his life. That was the price that was paid for your salvation. The blood of Jesus, the precious holy blood of Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for you. But for you, your salvation has has never had a cost associated with it. It has always been a free gift to you. He's never charged you for it. He's never going to demand you to pay something for it. He won't make you earn it or merit it. And in fact, you can't. It is his free gift to you. Free, yet very costly. And your salvation has also um, always only been given to you by grace through faith. By grace through faith. Grace is often defined as the blessings that you do not deserve, right? In this context, grace is God's forgiveness and his love, his immeasurable love for you. And salvation comes by God's grace and is received through faith. Faith is the avenue, it is the channel, it is the means by which you receive God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. Faith simply believes in God's promises and in his word and trusts that he will do what he says he will do. And faith is imparted to you through God's word. Faith is not something that you have to conjure up or or make within yourself. Paul says in Romans 10, 17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from God's word. As you hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus died on the cross in your place and on your behalf, you hear that good news. You believe it. Faith is kindled in your heart. And, And when we when we talk about faith, it's, it's important to remember too that faith is only as good as the object in which you place it, right? Earlier you sat down on that pew and uh, probably trusting without even thinking about it, trusting that that pew would hold you up. If you didn't think about it now, you, I hope you think about it when you go sit on those metal folding chairs in the fellowship hall, right? <laughs> you, you place your trust in that chair to hold you up faith is only as good as the object you place it in and it's not the size of your faith that matters either have you ever been going through a hard time and some well-meaning brother or sister in the Lord says oh you just need to have more faith and then you can get through this right just just a little more faith again faith finds its strength in the object that it's placed in when I was at the Bible college a teacher explained it this way and it's down on the bottom there. He said, This weak faith in a strong plank will get me across the creek. But strong faith in a weak plank will put me in the creek. Right? I love that picture. So, what are you placing your faith in? In the strong plank of Jesus Christ or, or in the weak planks that the world offers us? Your job title. Your acceptance by others, your relationship status, the government and our leaders, the type of car or truck that you drive, the toys that you have accumulated. What are you putting your faith in? The world wants us to trust in those weak planks and ignore Christ. But put your faith, put your hope, put your trust in Christ. He will never let you down. He will be with you through every storm of life. And then there's one final important truth regarding our salvation. Our salvation ought to lead us to do good. Look at verse 10 again. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, the the truth is that our, our salvation is a costly and free gift given by God by grace through faith it's not earned by our merits or deeds but that truth doesn't allow you to sit back and to relax and to do nothing either. God is, or Martin Luther is credited with credited with saying this, God doesn't need your good works but your neighbor does. And these good deeds don't have to be the the big things either. You don't have to start a food pantry every other week or give your Tuesday, Thursday, Saturdays to the New Life Center, although those are all good things. I don't think anybody would complain. Uh, but these good works that we have been created to do are often, sometimes the small things, that go unnoticed. It's a, it's a kind word spoken to a coworker. It's helping a fellow student with homework as she's been struggling with it. It's reaching out to that neighbor who hasn't been coming to church lately and asking them, how's it going? It's a, it's a phone call to a parent or a sibling or a friend that you haven't spoken to in a long time. Little things, but they do go a long way in helping to be a good neighbor. And so I'd encourage you this week, think about what good works the Lord has been leading you to do, that person that he is laying on your heart. And don't just think about it either, <laughs> but do it. Right? Uh, Plan it out. Schedule it out if you have to do that, right? And then do it. You weren't saved to sit idly by. These are truly matters of death and life. And it might be that for your neighbor as well. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you for this morning and for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for sending your son to die for us in our place and on our behalf. Father, and if there is anybody here who who isn't trusting in you, but trusting the the weak planks of life, uh, the things that we can do, Lord, convict us of that, draw that person to yourself, and may they trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.